So good morning again. Like Rich said, my name is Hayden. You might have seen me around here. A little bit about me. I began studying at Liberty last fall. And before I moved up here from North Carolina, my folks were asking around our church back home, trying to help me find where in the world I was going to live once I got up here. Roommates and places were not coming together, and time was short. I'm talking like a couple weeks before class started, I did not have a place to sleep in Lynchburg. So many prayers were going up. Finally, my parents found a connection in Lynchburg through some family church friends. Excitedly, my parents asked me, do you remember Clay Mackey? And I'm thinking, Clay Mackey? Clay Mackey? I haven't heard that name in like 10 years. I remembered him as the coffee dude who we jammed out playing guitar in his room one time way back in the day and whose dad used to whoop me in ping pong. Do you remember that guitar sesh? Yeah? Okay, cool. Um, anyway, we, con- we reconnected. He told me about TBC. He told me to check it out online and consider coming by. And uh, when I watched an online service, I remember thinking to myself, man, how am I going to break it to him that I'm not going to be coming to church here? Well, here I am. Needless to say, I was welcomed here. Is that my mic? I was loved here. Um, I saw Christ lifted up here. And I'm greatly thankful for Boundless and to be here with y'all today. So this is my first time ever doing a sermon. My ma and everyone back home have been so encouraging, saying, we're praying for you. But I'm always telling them, You need to be praying for the people who have to listen to me. (laughs) So rest easy. Y'all have all been prayed up. So with that, let's jump in. If this is your first week sitting in on this series, we've been working through Galatians 5, learning about Christ's character the Spirit produces in our lives as we walk with Him. Over the summer... We've been examining what Paul calls the fruit of this newfound life in Christ. We've heard from some of our very own boundless bros. How to identify and cultivate this fruit. And from clay, we've been needfully reminded that love, joy, peace, and the rest aren't merely some grocery list of virtues that we aspire to, but rather a reflection of our master's divine personality being born in us. So, let's do our best to get reacquainted with what's going on in the church of Galatia when Paul writes this letter. So if you remember back to the series when it began once upon a time, Paul is detailing God's own prescription to keep his people from falling to the desires of the flesh. God's desire is that we learn to walk by his Spirit. Now, if you look at Galatians 5 and verse 16, Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul knows if we learn to walk by the Spirit, we will steer clear of two pitfalls. Now, does anyone in here 
not a TES guy. Remember the two big L's from Clay's sermon way back in the day. David. Licentiousness, there's one. We got, we got any note takers in here? Legalism, who was that? Nice deal. There they are. So if anyone didn't hear, we got licentiousness and legalism. So by way of review, let's unpack each of those a bit, starting with legalism. So up until Jesus' kingdom broke into our world, the covenant family of God was centered on Israel. Israel were a people set apart by practices of Torah. Think kosher, circumcision, Sabbath, and like 613 other things. So following behind Paul in his journeys was a Jewish group infiltrating the churches of Galatia, undermining him, and insisting that followers of Jesus must also keep all the Levitical rules and regulations to make a Jewish person Jewish. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? And after all, how is anyone supposed to learn to walk with the God of Israel without the guidelines God himself gave in the Torah? According to Paul, all the Torah, the law, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Paul says, God's promise to create a family from all the nations is answered in the Messiah. And this new humanity relates to God on the basis of faith, not Jewish customs or any other sort of works. And so, Paul buries legalism with Christ. So what about licentiousness? That word we probably all heard for the first time in Clay's sermon. Because without the rules and regulations, people were going to do, well, whatever they please, right? Cheap sex, joyless grabs for happiness, cutthroat competition, and all the outworkings of the flesh, the law was in place to restrain. So what does Paul say? In Galatians 3 and 4, he explains the law did its job. The law exposes wrong and points the way to what is right. But even though the law teaches us right from wrong, we still choose wrong. The problem is we know what to do, but we don't do what we know. The law can only condemn the works of the flesh. But now, Jesus, in the atonement, puts the works of the flesh to death with himself on the cross and buries licentiousness in his grave. And now, by the transforming presence of Jesus, we are able to walk free in the Spirit, living our life in God. So this sermon today is called, Free to Walk. In our passage this morning, Paul's going to give us a final motivation to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to remind us what God has already done for us, how He's already crucified our flesh and given us life 
through His Spirit. And, Paul says, this demands a response. We must keep in step with His Spirit and resist the conceited temptations of our flesh. So look with me at how Paul rounds out this paragraph. We're back in Galatians 5 and starting in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So, if we're going to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives... Paul wants us to remember two realities for any note-takers. We're going to talk about two realities. First reality, we've received divine enablement. And the second reality, we're responsible to act on it. So, again, God has done his part, which frees us to do our part. So we're going to call the first reality divine enablement. Divine enablement. And the second reality is human responsibility. So, let's take a look at the first reality. Divine enablement. So this is going to take us from 24 to the first part of verse 25. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit... Dot, dot, dot. We'll get there later. So, here's a summary. For Paul, God has enabled us to cultivate this fruit. Okay, well, how does he do that? Well, negatively, by overcoming our flesh, and positively, by making us alive in his spirit. So, the first one we're going to look at is the death of the flesh, verse 24. The death of the flesh. So let's read it one more time. And those who are Christ's or belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, according to Paul, how do we know we belong to Christ? Well, what is your relationship with your flesh? Now, before answering that, let's take some time to get a concept of the flesh. This morning, we don't have to look very far. Look back up in verse 19, Galatians 5, 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now, here Paul details what it looks like when our flesh is in the driver's seat. So, you'll notice Paul lists these out in a general kind of way. But sometimes these things don't land with the full force that they ought to. So let me read you one pastor's recasting of this list in terms that may bring some of these closer to home for us. So here it is. 
loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an impotence to be loved or to love, divided homes, divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, and ugly parodies of community. So, did anyone here get left out of that list? Because when I read this, I see myself. We read these things, and we grimace at their ugliness. Yet, the greater revulsion is somehow I find myself caught up and pulled towards these things naturally. We've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit for some time now, and we've learned this fruit is all rooted in the eternal reality of the Father, Spirit, and the Son. So how about these rotten fruits of the flesh? Where are they rooted? So let's take a look back again at verse 24. Those who are crucified, sorry, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, what does Paul immediately tie to our flesh? Anybody? Passions and desires. Yep. Paul links the passions and desires to our flesh. So for Paul, somehow our flesh is bound up with its own desires. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul calls out these desires as deceitful. And James, in the first chapter of his letter, writes, These desires give birth to sin, which in turn will finally yield the bitter fruit of death. Again, in Romans 7, 14, Paul aches, I'm of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. So, let's bring all these together into a working definition of the flesh. So we can say the flesh is our self-gratifying, self-seeking, self-preserving, pleasure-seeking nature ruled by sin, at war with God, and at the expense of others. So if you're taking notes, I'll run through that one more time. The fleshes are self-gratifying, self-seeking, self-preserving, pleasure-seeking nature, ruled by sin, at war with God, at the expense of others. So in short, my flesh is my right to myself. It's my right to myself. So let's look at Romans. We're going to take a look at chapter 6. We're going to be reading in verse 6. So, this is about those 
who have received Christ. Our old man was crucified with him, that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Here's verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Freed. Now, if we died with Christ, I'm sorry, I'm going to skip to verse 11. So likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So, let's get back to the question at hand. What is my relationship to my flesh? Paul says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Those in Christ have crucified, have given up the right to themselves, gratifying themselves, seeking themselves, preserving themselves, pleasing themselves. Friend, is that you? Have you given yourself up as completely as you know how to Him? Turn to Him today and be free from the bondage of self and discover abundant life. This is the power of the redemption. Now, to those of us in Christ, Paul says if we are His, now notice, if we are His, we have crucified the flesh. In other words, it's already a done deal. So you read that, and if you're like me, you're thinking, that sounds great, Paul. But if my flesh is crucified, why am I still fighting it every day? Why am I still struggling and falling back into serving my flesh? Better yet, if my flesh is crucified, how does Jesus tell me to take up a cross daily, right? All right, check this out. So Colossians 3.3, 3, and I'll read this for you. Paul says, you died. You died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then in the same breath, in verse 5, Paul says, So, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. So, do you all hear that question the text raises? The question I'm, I'm trying to raise here is, if my flesh is crucified then why do I have to keep crucifying it? Or in other terms, if I'm free from my flesh, then how is it that I keep returning to it? So let's take a look at Numbers, the book of Numbers in chapter 11. Numbers 11. And while we're turning, I'll set the table for us. So here... We find Israel wandering the wilderness. God has just liberated the nation of Israel from their oppressors in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And in the culminating act of salvation in the first covenant, Yahweh reveals His name by redeeming His people and delivering them from their bondage. So here in Numbers, Yahweh has entered into covenant with Israel made a well to dwell with them as his people 
and is leading them into a flourishing land he's giving to them. So let's pick up Numbers 11. We're going to be in verse 4, starting in verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense desire. So the children of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we freely ate in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing to eat at all except this manna before our eyes. So what do we see here? Let's frame it up. So Israel, freed from Egypt, given to what? Desire, right? They give in to desire that deceives them into preferring their slavery. And then anyone familiar with Israel's sojourn from Egypt knows that this yearning to go back to Egypt is a chorus of Israel picked up again and again until finally chapter 14, verse 4, they say, let's choose a leader. Let's go back to Egypt. And we read this, and we're just like bewildered. If not for God holding tight to his people, to his promises, Israel would not have pressed on to take hold of their inheritance. We read all this and wonder, how could Israel, liberated from bondage, choose to go back? Well, don't we? So let's ask our question again. If I'm free from my flesh, how is it I keep returning to it? Well, was Israel freed from Egypt? Yes. Did Egypt still carry Egypt with them? Yes. So now back to us. Are we free and crucified to the flesh? Yes. But do we still carry the flesh with us? We do. We know it well. Even in Christ, our struggle with the flesh continues in this life. But brother, sister, be encouraged. This struggle, this conflict, is the Christian life. If your struggle with the flesh stops in this life, that's when you know you're in trouble. So listen, a wise person once told me, crucifying the flesh don't feel like a hug. But just as God decidedly liberated Israel through the Red Sea, out of bondage to Egypt, so Jesus Christ has decisively liberated us through the cross and out of bondage to the flesh, breaking the flesh's power over us. But likewise, without God holding tightly to us and to His promises, we would not press on to take hold of our inheritance. So, how do we take hold of this new life in Christ? Well, let's move on to Paul's next reality of the Spirit. 
So here's our next reality. The first one was death to the flesh. This next one is life by the Spirit. Life by the Spirit. This is verse 25. We'll be back in Galatians chapter 5. All right. And some kind of sounds weird to read by itself. We're going to try it. If we live in the Spirit... So, here Paul opens up with a big if. This is his way of inviting us to ask ourselves, do I live in the Spirit? In Galatians 5, Paul has already given us two litmus tests to tell. First, is my flesh crucified with Christ? Have my old desires been laid at the cross? Am I in the habit of pruning away the desires in the works of the flesh, wherever they manifest. Next, is my faith working and expressing itself through love, bearing the fruit of the Spirit and the life of God in me? These things are two sides of the same coin. These are as inseparable as breathing out is to breathing in. So far, we've dived in to the flesh in plenty of detail. Now let's take some time to sketch out our life in the Spirit. I'm going to borrow from Clay again here. Clay, referencing Paul, says, The Spirit is God's answer to the transformation of the human race. Paul says in Ephesians 4, He is the pledge, the deposit, the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance until the final redemption, the consummation of all the covenants. We have access to God in His ever-present eternal life through the outpouring of His Spirit. And now, just as the God who is Spirit became incarnate in the flesh, that very life of Christ can now be incarnate in our own lives as we are made into sons and daughters of God. In Christ, we have the freedom to fully love, the power to lay down our lives, the power to give of God's never-ending life, the power to obey. All this is ours to lay a hold of. He has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 1, 3. And then Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3, God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. That doesn't leave anything out. God broke up the hard ground, dug up all the stones, removed the thorns and briars when he crucified our flesh with Christ. God sowed his seed and planted his life in us by the Spirit. And now we will find that God recruits us to work and keep the garden that he has planted. So next we're going to move into the second reality. The first was divine enablement. This next reality is human responsibility. Human responsibility. We're going to pick up in um, 25, the last half of 25 and 26. It says, Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So here Paul moves from all God's work on our behalf 
into our human responsibility in sanctification. Then gives a final warning to keep watch over how our flesh will subtly plunder our freedom if we're not vigilant. So first, we're going to look at keep in step. This is Paul's first command, to keep in step. So if all this has been purchased for us, what is left for us to do? Well, verse 25, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, Paul uses some interesting language here worth noting. Many translations choose to render the call in this verse as keep in step. So let me tell you why I think this is a good choice. This word in the Greek has a specifically militant tone. So the idea here is keeping in rank or advancing in a march behind a captain. Think of 2 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us manifests the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Think about Paul's entreating us to take up God's own armor. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12. And so a dimension of keeping in step has to do with walking in Christ's conquest of our enemy's kingdom in the cosmos. Now, this does not mean we go full cavalier, kamikaze Christian, recklessly whirling the sword of truth. But it does mean that we wisely and strategically wield the truth, prayerfully walking in the pattern of the author and finisher of our faith. So how is it we keep in step? Here are a few ways I think we can start to keep this command. So number one, number one, this is all going to be like military lingo to go with the metaphor. By our general's orders. General's orders. So this is knowing, submitting to his word. Seeking his word out. This includes reading our Bible, meditating on the text, the intake of good sermons, learning Bible backgrounds and cultural context, being a good student of the Word. Simply put, submitting our lives to His Word. His Word teaches us to know Him, to walk with Him, tells us who He is, what His purposes are, and it all begins with heeding His voice. So how are we supposed to march in tune if we don't know the mandate? His Word is the lamp that lights the way. Number two, by our comrades, by our comrades, following others who are keeping in step with the Spirit. We learn by shared life. Christ is manifest in this world through His people, and He's chosen community as a means of ministering to and transforming us. Number three, by contact. This is prayer. By contact, prayer. Prayer is bringing our life into the presence of God, lifting our hearts for Him to fill, getting His own heart on all the matters that press into our daily lives, and reclaiming afresh and anew each day who He is, His promises, and the reality of redemption. And then four, by training, by training, cultivating good habits. If we're working out our Christian life by the means of the Spirit's power, we are constrained to submit our will to His own. This is our part of the Christian life. Second Peter 1.5, Peter gives us a list of things he urges us to add 
to our faith. I'll read them to you. It said, For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. And let me share with you Oswald Chambers' meditation on this verse. Peter says, add. Add means there's something that we have to do. We're in danger of forgetting that we cannot do what God does. And that God will not do what we can do. We cannot save ourselves, nor sanctify ourselves. God does that. But God will not give us good habits. He will not give us character. He will not make us walk aright. We have to do all that ourselves. We have to work out the salvation God has worked in. Add means get into the habit of doing difficult things. In the initial stages, it is difficult. Take the initiative and make a beginning and instruct yourself in the way you have to go. So to keep in step what the Spirit looks like, summing it all up, encountering the truth in the reading, hearing, preaching of the Word, it looks like submitting to that truth. It looks like renewing our minds in that truth and cultivating good habits rooted in the truth. Again, Oswald continues his meditation on Second Peter saying, The tiniest detail in which I obey has all the omnipotent power of the grace of God behind it. Whereas Paul says of his labor in Christ from Colossians 1.29, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to working. Our faith ought to work, but not for love, We don't work to earn love or to earn favor. No, we work from love. Love of Christ compels us. You can almost hear Paul in these passages gritting his teeth, pouring himself out, running his hardest because he's free to walk. So from here, Paul pivots into a warning, picking up on a line of thought from verse 13 where he says, You've been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. So here we see our flesh is pre-wired to leveraging freedom for its own desires. We've uncovered the desires that work in our flesh and exposed a bondage that masquerades itself as freedom. So what does it look like within the church when the flesh is at work hijacking our freedom to walk in the Spirit? So this is our last point, B. It's Paul's second command. Don't grow conceited. Verse 26, again, don't grow conceited. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul closes this passage calling for us to guard against conceit and spells out what it looks like when conceit is taken hold. This passage is the counterpart to Paul's first command. Notice, let us keep in step. And here, let us not become conceited. Like our first two realities of divine enablement complemented one another, here, 
these twin perspectives in our human responsibility inform one another. As we're cultivating new habits that orient us in the life of the Spirit, we are also learning to prune off old habits and uprooting ways of thinking that crowd out the Spirit's growing in us. So notice here the one heart attitude Paul chooses to single out is conceit. This is the fertile ground for the flesh to take root right here in our midst. This is the imminent threat to our freedom to walk in Paul's mind. We ought to take a closer look. So what is Paul getting at here when he's talking about conceit? Now, I don't know Greek, but guys who write commentaries do. And New Testament scholar Douglas Moo reminds us that breaking down a word into parts usually doesn't take us to the true meaning of a word any more than butterflies have anything to do with butter. However, in this case, there's a rare exception to the rule. Our word for conceited is from the Greek kinos, meaning empty, and doxos, meaning praise. So put it together, and you have empty praise. So here, we have a person who believes they ought to be complimented or recognized. And actually, the good old King James captures this idea really well with a murd, with a murd, with a word you might not have heard before. So King James translates this word as vain glory. Vain glory. Anybody heard that? A couple of people? Okay. Got some King Jamers in here. So this gets at another aspect of conceit. It's seeking glory from myself. Now, a job well done and approval, these are good things. These are good things. But when we find ourselves motivated by a desire to outshine our brothers and sisters, you can be sure we're not walking free. You can be sure. Listen to Martin Luther. Y'all might have heard of him. He's uh, commenting on this passage here. Vainglory has always been a common poison in the world. There's no village too small to contain someone who wants to be considered wiser or better than the rest. Those who have been bitten by pride usually stand upon the reputation for learning and wisdom. Vainglory is not nearly so bad in a private person or even in an official as it is in a minister. So to Luther, this poison is at its worst right here in the church. We have to remain vigilant always, especially, especially of our own hearts, of our own deceitful desires. So here are two fruits we can trace back to find the root of vainglory. So provoking and envy, Paul says. Provoking and envy. Provoking here is variously translated as challenging. Challenging. So leaning here on Douglas Moo again, our Greek guy, provoking in this instance can be understood as aggressive challenges to others in their views. Yeah? So let's not get this wrong. As Christians, we are called to constantly confront sin and lies in this world. 
And in doing so, we will necessarily challenge someone's views. If we don't challenge someone's views, we are not communicating the message. The message is not coming through. So what is Paul getting at here? Well, ask yourself this. What is the spirit in which you're challenging someone? Are you after a reaction? Are you aiming to prove or assert yourself? Do you want to be the best arguer? Are you seeking understanding? Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no delight in understanding, but in expressing, expressing his own heart or own opinion. James 1.19 Let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak. 2 Timothy 2.24 A servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to all. And verses here could be multiplied, but we're going to move on to envy. Now, envy is being embittered. It's the success or the happiness of others. And it's nastiest. It can enjoin us to be happy even at someone's downfall. Envy is born when I see someone as a threat to my purposes or my glory. But friend, when our purposes are in God and we give glory due to Him, how can we boast? When our eyes are rightly fixed on God, these little competitions we invent with each other melt away. I found when I'm feeling insecure about someone better, faster, stronger than me in whatever area, my flesh's first reaction to inflate my own gifts and insulate my ego. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Gifts are given. Gifts are not earned. But somehow we fall prey into this delusion like our gifts are all thanks to ourselves. God's given us all an array of gifts. And the same gifts I see and envy in others, God has given to my brother to edify and build me up in his church. And my own gift that I wrongly use to elevate myself in my own eyes, God has given me to build up and edify my brother. So we must realize no one's strengths take away from our own. One of my brothers told me the best way I found to counter envy. When you're feeling threatened by someone else's strength or gift, build them up. Affirm that gift in them and just watch your pride deflate. Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in all humility count others more significant than yourselves. So to wrap up, what have we learned so far? What have we seen so far in Galatians? In Christ, our flesh is overcome. And in our new life, we learn to prune off old habits and cultivate new ones. Finding all along the while, we're carried along by the Spirit of God as the life of Christ is formed in us. And now we have power 
and freedom to walk in God's ways and take hold of His desire for us to receive His fullness of life as we grow in faithfulness to keep in step with Him we discover His faithfulness in renovating our inner life and desires restoring the perfect reflection of His image in us He has promised to finish the work but He calls us to partner with Him cultivating and bearing His fruit in the world so friends Brother, sister, what will you do with this divine freedom? Let's pray.